In the heart of each of us is the desire to explore, to venture out, to leave behind the ordinary and find something new. New places, new paths, new challenges. We look for adventure and for a tomorrow that asks more of us than today did. We want to hear the wind in the trees. We want to look out across the expanses. We want to take in the beauty around us and find the thrill the average person never does. So we set out to find a better way in our relationships, in our pursuits, and in our faith. Life Trails, take the next step. Motivation is an interesting thing, isn't it? It makes us want to do something or it makes us want to do something enough that we actually do it. But all of us are motivated. Sometimes we're motivated in very good ways and sometimes we're motivated in very bad ways. Uh, like that last cookie that you just had or hitting the snooze button or whatever it happens to be. Uh, when you get going on Sunday morning or whether it's you know, at dinner later on this afternoon. But we're all motivated by different things. And sometimes we're motivated by like the approval of other people. And so we, we want them to like us or we want them to say good things about us. So we try to do things that we think, well, well that motivates us. Sometimes we're motivated by our desire for, for personal gratification or for comfort to, or to just uh, feel something that, that feels good to us and seems good to us and that we just enjoy. Sometimes we're motivated by our desire to be better than somebody else, and that's why we play the game, or that's why we go to work, or, or that's why we share the story, because we want to be or appear better than somebody else around us. Sometimes we're motivated by things like power or prestige, or Mark talked about this last week, we're motivated by things like status. Sometimes we're actually motivated by things like fear. And we don't do things or we do do things because we're afraid of what might or might not happen depending on what the action that we take is. Sometimes we're motivated by reward or gain. But the truth of the matter is that we all are motivated. And sometimes we say that about people. Well, his problem is that he's just not motivated. That's not exactly true. He's just not motivated in the right direction because he is motivated to take the course of action that he's taking but we all are motivated. In fact, the fact that you're here this morning is an, a, a demonstrative of the fact that you are motivated. The question is, why are you here this morning? Some of you are here because your, might, your mate bugged you and said, hey, let's go to church. Maybe some of you are here because it's just your desire to grow in your faith, to learn more about God, to experience God. And that's what motivated you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning because you thought that coming to church would like score you some, some God points, and then maybe it'd go better with you this next week because, hey, you, you put your time in on Sunday morning. Maybe you came to church and the motivation was curiosity. What is church all about, or what is this church all about, or what is this whole God thing all about, and that curiosity motivated you? Maybe it was the donuts afterwards. I'm not sure. But there's a reason why you're sitting here this morning, and that's your motivation. And motivation is a challenge for all of us to lead ourselves or to direct ourselves in the right way. 
But motivation is a challenge for most of us in a different way as well. And that's that we serve in the role of motivators in life. If you're a parent this morning, and if you, especially if you have kids at home, you are a motivator. You know, like that room that you've looked at, and like, could a child actually live in that? And you're trying to motivate them to clean that up. Or maybe you're trying to motivate them to do their homework. Or maybe you're trying to motivate them to just be nice to their brother and sister. But we're in that role as parents, as motivators. Some of us are bosses. And there's people that work for you and that that are under your lead. And you're constantly thinking, okay, how do I help them become better at what they're doing? Or how do they... How do we together help meet our objectives and our, and our goals here? And we have to motivate them. If you're a teacher, you're constantly motivating students to learn. If you're a coach, you're constantly trying to motivate your players to play better. And then there's people like me who are pastors. That one of my jobs is to help motivate you to be more passionate about your faith to be more sincere in your following of Christ. And I realize that it's the Holy Spirit that does that, but I want to be partnering with him. And so one of my things on a Sunday morning is how do we motivate? But we're all in the motivation business, whether we have to motivate ourselves or whether we have to motivate the people that are under us or that we're responsible for. Or sometimes it's just motivating the person in front of us at the traffic light who doesn't seem to understand the green means Go! But we're all motivators. Now, what tools do we use, though, when it comes to motivation? Sometimes we resort to what I would call negative motivation tools. Negative motivation tools are things like this, threat. If you don't do that, and fill in the blank. Or if you do that, we, we do that and we have that threat that's out there. Sometimes the negative motivation that we use is actually like shame. I can't believe you even thought about doing something like that. Or, or, or I'm so disappointed and we use, or if you do that, I don't know if I'll ever. And we go to those, those negative motivators of, of, of threat, of, of shame. Sometimes it's disapproval. Sometimes it's sarcasm. And we have these things that, that we throw out there. And a lot of times we resort to these when the positive ones have, have, have failed So, like, if you don't get your homework done, you're never going to walk out of this house for the next 30 years. We go to those type things because we're desperate, but we go to negative motivators. But I think positive motivators are so much better. Things like praise or encouragement. Hey, I think you can do this. Or, Or challenge. Hey. This is, this is going to be tough, but I know you, you can handle this, and, and it's going to make you a better person. And sometimes we go to the positive motivator of reward. Mark actually talked about this a little bit last week in his message, about the, the, the reward of, of um, humility and the reward of following Christ. But when we talk about reward, we oftentimes couch it in this idea of incentives. And so we try to provide incentives. So, for instance, if you, um, if, if you come to our college, we'll give you a free MacBook. That happened for one of my kids, and she went to that college. I did tell her that it really wasn't free. It was just budgeted to make it look like it's free, right? Like, you paid for that kid. And, uh, but we do that, right? This is the incentive. Or, you know, there's no interest for six months or for a year or for two years. And if you buy it at the wrong furniture store, you're still paying on it long after the couch has already you know, gone its way and died over in the corner. Or we'd have this one. You know, there's cash back on all our purchases or, or the BOGO. Buy one, get one. 
what about that makes me want to buy one? I don't know, but it's this incentive that's out there. Or there's the early bird registration discount. If you sign up, buy, you can save $50. I'm in. I don't even want this, but I just save $50 and spend $150 on the rest of the registration. Or how about this one, the incentive of free food at Costco. That's why so many people shop there at noontime. You don't even have to go to McDonald's. You can just work your way around the store there. But we're motivated by incentives. Or how about this? We'll give you a free vacation if you'll just sit and listen to our presentation and twist your arm harder than it's ever been twisted in your entire life and, uh, and you know, put a pillow over your face and everything else that we do to get you to buy one of these timeshares. But we're always dealing with this idea of incentives. Well, would it surprise you this morning to learn that Jesus actually threw out an incentive if you want to be his follower? He says this, hey, if you want to be my follower, here's what you can do, expect, receive, the reward, the return that you can get. But it doesn't go in the direction that you're actually thinking. So we're going to look this morning at Luke chapter 9 and invite you to turn there. And we're going to look at this incentive that Jesus threw out there. Have you ever thought about this? How much even in the church world we use this idea, in the faith world we use this idea of incentives, for instance. Well, just trust Jesus and you can enjoy eternal life. There's the incentive. Well, trust Jesus and you can have your relationship with the Father restored. Or trust Jesus and you can find meaning and purpose in life or trust Jesus and you can have him for your best friend or trust Jesus and you can find freedom from guilt and, and find forgiveness and trust Jesus in you and we often approach our faith that way well I just need to trust Jesus because of what it will do for me it will give me eternal life and it'll give me forgiveness and it'll give me a relationship with God and it'll give and we often look at faith motivation that way. And then Jesus comes along and messes everything up. And so what we're going to look at this morning is how Jesus used incentive, how Jesus motivated, and how Jesus got people on board, kind of, and what he offered to those who actually followed him. And to be completely honest, when I look at what he has to say here, I'm not really into his incentive plan. Because I look at it and go, huh, that seems kind of not exactly what I was expecting. Well, we're in this series. We're talking about the cross and what it really means to live looking forward to the cross, which is Easter, but what it also means to live in view of or in light of the cross. How do we walk our lives out because the cross is a reality? And Mark talked last week about living and walking in humility. And by the way, he had some great stuff in that message last week. If you missed it, you can go back and watch it online. But today we come to this story, and Mark mentioned it a little bit. He looked at it in the, the passage in Matthew. We're going to look at the same passage in Luke chapter 9 here. And Jesus says, or in the, the, Luke says this, verse number 18. When Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples replied, Well, some say John the Baptist, which was kind of a weird answer because John the Baptist and Jesus would have been living at the same time. But others say that you're Elijah. Okay, maybe. Like Elijah never actually died, so maybe he just came back. And, and still others say that you're one of the prophets of long ago and that you're coming back to life. And so that the crowds knew that there was something unique and special about Jesus. 
But then Jesus goes on, he says, how about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, well, you're God's Messiah. You are the Christ. And here we find Peter's exclamation. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And we've been following you for a long time, Jesus, and we've been watching you. And this is what we think. You know, other people say John the Baptist, Elijah, whatever. We think now that you are actually the Christ. You are the Messiah. And Peter's the one who speaks up here. And Peter gets it right. And Peter, a lot of times in his life, gets it wrong because he's saying or doing weird and, and, and off-the-cuff things and gets himself in trouble. But in this case, he gets it completely right. And as we go on here and read, we find that Jesus affirms his statement that, yeah, he is right. In fact, if we read this in Matthew chapter 16, he, he makes it very clearly. But then we can also sense in here the, the disciples' anticipation. The kingdom is coming. You are the Christ, and the Christ comes to earth. That means that you are bringing the kingdom, and everything's going to change, isn't it? The, the Romans, we're not going to have to worry about the Romans anymore and all of this oppression that we've been living underneath. We don't have to worry about that anymore because you are going to bring in the kingdom. You are going to be the king. And you can just picture the high fives all around. It's the disciples, yes, we got this right. Yes, Jesus is going to be the king. And think about this. Here's the anticipation. If Jesus comes in as the king and we're his pals, we might be looking at some pretty good roles here in the kingdom. And so, so we see another round of high fives here. You know, maybe we'll get to have a, a place of honor in this kingdom. And they're feeling pretty good about it. And I think that Jesus here has a choice. Like he could keep them pumped up and keep the momentum going. But he steps back and he does something different. He says something different. And it says in verse number 21, he says, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. I just had to sit kind of weird with the disciples, don't you think? Hey, you're the king. The kingdom's coming. This is going to be great. And we're not allowed to tell anybody? What's up with that? Like, how are we going to bring in a kingdom if nobody knows that there's a kingdom coming? You know, if it's a secret, this isn't really going to work out very well. But Jesus keeps going, <laughs> and it doesn't get any better. He said... The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. And so Jesus realizes that there's a need for more explanation, and he basically says to the disciples, hey, this isn't going to happen like you think. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the King. Yes, the kingdom is going to come, and I'm bringing it with me, but... I'm not going to be reigning here right now. In fact, I'm going to be killed. And I'm sure all the high fives that have been going on, now the disciples are like, what's he talking about? This doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus said to them all in verse number 23, and there's some discussion and debate who all is. Does it mean that Jesus is moving from his discussion here with Peter to all the disciples. Most scholars think that he's actually, like more people have arrived on the scene, and we have a major transition. So as Jesus is speaking, he's speaking to all of his would-be followers in a large group setting, and he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple 
must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And Jesus resets their expectations. And Jesus lays out his incentives. How do these sound for incentives? You have to deny yourself. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if if we're going to talk about following Jesus, that means that we're going to go where he wants to go because he's setting the direction, he's setting the course, and we're just getting in line behind him. And so that... That kind of makes sense, and that doesn't, that doesn't seem that bad. I mean, he is the leader. We do what the leader says, and, and we assume that since we're following him, he has our best will in mind, and that's why we generally follow leaders, right? Because we believe that, that, that they have our best interest in mind, and so when Jesus says, hey, deny yourself, okay, I get that. That, that makes sense. I mean, we're, we're going to be about what, what you say, not about what we're thinking over here. You know, maybe we like to have some input now and then, but, but we're good with that. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said you have to deny yourself, and then you need to take up your cross. Now, think this through. First of all, in the the verse before that, Jesus had said, "I, I must be killed. But he didn't say how he was going to be killed. The crucifixion hadn't taken place, and the disciples really had no clue what that was about. So when Jesus says, take up your cross... It's not like the disciples are sitting there going, oh, you mean like when you're about to go die on the cross? That thought would have never crossed their minds, not in 100 years. So when Jesus says, hey, you need to deny yourself, but you need to take up your cross, what exactly would the disciples have done with that statement? It would be like, what is he talking about? Well, he was talking about, well, Mark mentioned this last week, actually. He wasn't talking about, like, being willing to put up with a hardship that might come if you follow Christ. So it's like, you know what? Deny yourself, and if you follow me, it might be hard. You're just going to have to live with, that, with the weight of the cross. That wasn't it. As the disciples would have heard this, the only understanding they would have had where the cross would have been the form of execution that was used by the Romans back then, when a, a uh, prisoner or, or somebody who was guilty of a crime would be given a sign to cross and he would carry that out and he would be crucified on that cross. But the idea of the cross, to take up your cross, is it's a one-way street. Because when you walk your cross out, you don't walk it back. And so Jesus is saying, you're going to make a choice here to follow me. And it's not about this weight, like this, this cross I have to bear. It's about the death. And it's like this huge exclamation point to that first thought of denying yourself. You're going to deny yourself to the extent that you're dead. Your wants are dead. Your wishes are dead. Your desires are dead. Your ambitions are dead. Your goals are dead. Your agenda is dead. And you're going to have to give it all to following me. Well, that ups it quite a bit, doesn't it? And doesn't that sound like a great incentive? I think I'll follow Christ because it's going to cost me my life. And that's exactly what Jesus said. And then he gets to that last point and he says, now, follow me. Now, if I'm a disciple, if I'm there at that point, first of all, I'm probably very confused by what Jesus is saying. And I'm sure this made a lot more sense to them following all the events of Easter. But this doesn't sound like a fun gig. 
First he says that he's going to die, and we thought that he was the Christ, so why is he dying? And then he turns around and says that you're going to have to die, and I'm like, you know what? This maybe isn't what we want to sign up for. I'm sure they weren't saying like, hey, where does the line start, guys? Because I want to get there. And yet, I wonder if what Jesus is saying here is far more positive than what we read into this. So why was he talking about, and why would anyone, including us, why would we choose this life? Well, Jesus goes on. And he says, I want you to do this, but there's a reason for doing this. And this is really where the incentive locks in. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. It's not going to be like you expect here, guys. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Obviously, the answer is it's no good. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so what is the motivation? What is the incentive? Why would anyone want to follow Christ? At first glance, it's like nobody would because it just means taking up your cross and it just means dying and that just seems like such a bad option, doesn't it? And yet Jesus is saying, oh, no, 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 no. What I'm offering you is actually something good, something desirable, and something positive. For instance... If you will follow me, you can save what you might otherwise lose. And so Jesus is saying, you kind of look at following, you'll look at the cross and say, oh gosh, I'm going to lose this. And Jesus says, oh, it's not what you lose, it's what you gain, it's what you save. First of all, you save yourself. You save your life. You save what you want to be about. And all of us have these desires inside of us of what we want our life to be about. We want to get to the end of our life and think that, well, I lived that well. That it had meaning, that it had purpose, that it had significance, that it had fulfillment. And Jesus is saying, you know what? If you will follow me, that's what you're going to get. Now, if you'll keep pursuing yourself, you're going to find frustration. You're going to find disappointment. You're going to find heartbreak. You're going to find heartache. You're going to get to the end and go, I thought this was what I wanted to be about. And there's just nothing here. And so Jesus says, you can save what you might otherwise lose. And then he goes on there and he says, hey, you can gain more than you're going to give up. And so, yes, it's going to cost you your life, not physically, but it's going to cost you that selfish desire, ambition, agenda, whatever it is. It's going to cost you that, but it's, you're going to gain so much more than what you're going to give up here. Man, you might lose some comfort. You might lose some personal pleasure. But the trade-off is going to be so worth it. The exchange is going to be so much better than what you think. And then he says this, you will be prepared for what comes next. And I think for most of us, we struggle with this idea, what is the next life going to look like? And, and I don't think as Christ followers, we look at the next life with fear, but we look at the next life sometimes with, with confusion or questions or, or wondering. And, and by the way, um, this past week, um, one of our longtime WCC members, Don Sweet, passed away. 
went to be with the Lord, and he is experiencing uh, the joy of whatever comes next, the joy of heaven, the joy of, of being with Christ. But Jesus is saying here actually is, hey, you know what? If you're going to give up your life, you know what? You're, you're going to give up this life, but you're going to gain the, the next life or the eternal life or that life when, when I come again in glory, in the glory of the Father, when we spend eternity with the Father there. And, and if you'll follow me, you can be prepared for what comes next. And so these are all incentives. He's saying, you're going to give this up, but there's going to be something better that becomes because of this. And then I think he's also saying this, hey, you know what? If you, if you need a motivation or incentive for following me, and this is not in your notes, the biggest one is where we all started back in this story with what Peter said. You are the Christ. The greatest motivation to following is because he is the Christ. And Jesus is saying to them, hey, he starts this whole story. Follow me. Because that relationship with me is going to be worth anything that you might be asked to give up along the way. It might be, it'll be worth anything that it costs you personally along the way. You will be the beneficiary at the end because you have followed me. And so when it takes this instruction, I guess you might call it, of Jesus, and it turns it into an actual invitation. And Jesus is saying to his followers, this will be so worthwhile to you. And I'm sure that it's just messing with the disciples' heads if they're standing there. It's like, whoa, time out. First of all, you're going to die, and then you want us to die. And now you're telling us that this is going to be so much, uh, so much benefit to us. And there's more to this story then about what we realize. But I think one of the interesting things here in this story is that death is the pathway to life. In verse number 22, Jesus said this, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and he will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And what is that next phrase, though? This is so important to this story. The next phrase, he will be killed. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And this is the big idea here that death is the pathway to life. And we see it as this horrible thing. And, and death has its horrors. I'm not denying that. But Jesus is saying, hey, this is a passageway to get where you want to go. And physically, it's a passageway to get from this life to the next life. But spiritually, it's a passageway to get from the things that we chase after that disappoint us and that don't matter to get to this life that's fulfilling and meaningful and worthwhile. And the idea is that life is on the other side of death. And if we're going to get to this life, we will have to go through this discomfort of death, but it will be so worthwhile. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't be afraid of the death that I'm asking for you, from you. Look forward to this life that I want to give to you. So they didn't need to look at it, and we didn't need to look at it saying, oh gosh, this is like Jesus asking me give, to give up everything. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm not asking you to give up everything. I'm inviting you to experience everything. Well, this brings us to an application here this morning as, as we close up. 
Let me just suggest four things. As we look at this idea, though, that Jesus is actually offering his best to us. The first thing is this. This is an active choice. This is an active choice. If you read this again, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross. It's not that you need to be willing if a cross comes your way. It's not that you need to be willing to deal with hardships in case hardships land on you. It's not that you have to be willing to deal with persecution or you may have to be, deal with ridicule or whatever. It's not that you need to be willing in case it comes. Jesus is saying, you need to make this choice. You need to take up your cross. And this is the, it's the invitation, it's the instruction. And it's an active choice where we say, I will do this. So it can't mean that I'm just willing to take things on and deal with disappointment, hardships, or whatever. It's where I am actually saying, this is my choice to take up my cross. Secondly, the choice is daily. Jesus said, whoever wants to, verse number 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And this means that every day of my life, then I get up and I'm like, okay, my choice today, Jesus, is to take up my cross and to follow you. So my choice when I go to work and I face temptation, maybe there at work, is I'm going to choose you, choose your way, and I'm going to take up my cross. And maybe it costs me, maybe it doesn't. But that's what my choice is going to be. And so taking up my cross is a daily decision that we make each and every day of our lives, including April 3rd and April 4th and April 5th and April 6th. That each day we choose this cross. Well, what exactly is this cross? I think it comes down to this third thing. I think that this cross or this choice is trust. That every day, I am going to choose to trust God with my life. That means that when I have to make a decision that goes against what I think is, is the, 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 the common sense or, or the, the wisdom of the day type thing, that I can still choose what the Bible says and still be okay because I am choosing Christ and I can trust him. Jesus is the Christ. His kingdom will be forever. Giving up ourselves for his kingdom will be to our benefit. Death does not need to be feared. Following him will bring life to us. These are the choices of trust. Because there are times in the Christian life where you're like, ooh, I don't know if I want to do that. Or boy, that looks really hard. Or making this decision here. Or making, changing my priority from this to this or my value from this to this. This doesn't seem comfortable to me. And what I do by taking up my cross is I'm like, okay, this maybe wouldn't be what I think or what I would choose or what, what common, common wisdom of the world would say. But Jesus, I trust you in this moment. Today, this is my choice. And then finally, the choice is my choice cross. This is interesting. Jesus didn't ask you to take up his cross. He asked you to take up your cross. And so he's not talking about, you know, taking the sins of the world on you. You don't have to do that. 
He, he's not talking about the, 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 the pain and the suffering and all the, the torture they went. That's not what he's asking you to do. He's asking you to, to take up your cross. He's asking you to take up your decision, your choice of whether or not I'm going to trust God in this moment, whether or not I'm going to trust God in this day with my obedience, with my love, with my affections, with my values, with my prioritizing how life goes, where my time goes, where, where my affections go. This is what it means to take up my cross. It's to walk in trust. You know, the cross was an ugly, cruel, painful, grotesque form of execution. It's kind of crazy that we embrace it as our symbol of faith, isn't it? And we see crosses everywhere. In fact, some of you probably have on jewelry or, or something this morning that, that, would, uh, that would be a cross. And sometimes we put that cross around our neck, and actually we have a cross up front there behind the screen. And we use that symbol as a cross and, and, and what that means to us. But I'd like to just finish this morning by, by taking a different look at that cross. And instead of looking at Jesus' cross, look at your cross to start with. And what does it look like? And maybe it means giving up an ambition, and maybe it means to follow an obedience, and maybe it means to, to make a change in a relationship. It could go in a lot of different directions. But what does your cross look like? What does it look like for you to trust in Jesus? And then once you've pictured your cross, to take a moment to picture his cross. And everything that he gave up for you. But you know, it's interesting, Mark talked about this last week in, in Philippians chapter 2. It says, after the cross, what does it say? Wherefore, God has highly exalted him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2. It says, for the, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross because he knew it was coming out the other side. And so we look at the cross of Christ as the cross of suffering, but it was also a cross of victory. We're going to talk about that on Easter. But we could compare our cross and say, am I willing to, what am I willing to sacrifice, give up? Because of what Jesus gave up for me. And that's a valid, valid question. But it's also to look at your cross and to look at his cross and to say, you know what? It's going to be so worthwhile. So Jesus comes with this crazy incentive. Hey, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. And we look at it and go, oh, why would I want to do that? Because Jesus says, because the cross is the doorway to life. And that's what I want you to experience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray through your spirit that you would use your word to speak to us and to apply this where it actually fits with us, where we wrestle with you being in charge of our lives, where you making the calls, with you being the priorities. I pray that you would speak to us. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it comes through a cross, not yours, but his. He died on the cross for your sin. He was buried in. He did come back to life three days later. That's the story of Easter. 
but he did that for you so that you could have forgiveness, so that you could have a relationship with the Father, so that you could have eternal life with him someday. And where you could enjoy the life that he wants for you even now. If you've never invited Jesus Christ in your life, I'd encourage you where you sit this morning. It's a simple conversation or prayer between you and him. Jesus, I know I've sinned. I deserve this death. But I know that you died in my place for my sin. I want to ask you to forgive me and come into my life. If you are a Christ follower, if you've already chosen his cross, the challenge to you today is to choose your cross. What would it look like tomorrow morning for you to get up and say, okay, Jesus, I choose my cross. I trust you. I'm following you today no matter what. Maybe it's the temptation that you're facing right now. Maybe it's a situation that you're in. Maybe it's a relationship that you really need to follow Jesus here. Will you make that decision? Jesus, we ask that you would help us daily to take up our cross. Amen.